Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater so Cleveland Incorporated. Good morning, friends. You have a front seat to democracy today. I'm Dan Malthrop, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. Today's Tuesday, October 4th. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive and a proud member of the City Club. So since November of 1947, a sizable number of Americans have spent their Sunday mornings with NBC's Meet the Press. And here at the City Club, we feel a special Sunday morning affinity for the show and the journalists who have helmed it, especially Tim Russert, a Buffalo native who Clevelanders claim as one of our own, and the man who hosted, and also, in addition to Tim, the man who hosted since 2014, our guest today, Chuck Todd. Born in Florida, though not exactly a Florida man, Chuck Todd started in political journalism with the National Journal's The Hotline in 1992, where he eventually became the host of the daily webcast Hotline TV. His work there led him to become a frequent contributor on broadcast political shows such as Hardball and Inside Politics. And in 2007, Tim Russert recruited him to NBC to take on the role of political director. In 2008, he took on the role of White House correspondent as well. At Meet the Press, he has pushed the show to expand its presence on digital platforms, creating daily content that serves as a proving ground for Sunday material. And sitting as he does at the anchor desk on Meet the Press, he sees it all. The inner workings of democracy, the partisan gamesmanship of elections, the occasional earnest idealism that might still occasionally, maybe sometimes, be visible in our nation's capital. If you squint. <laughs> if you squint. Yeah. And in the last few weeks, he's hosted interviews on Ukraine, NATO, the January 6th insurrection, national security, the response to Hurricane Ian, a new book by a former U.S. attorney. Long story short, he covers about uh, just about everything except sports, which he saves for Tony Kornheiser's podcast. And he can tell us a little bit about that maybe later. If you have a question, uh, bring it up in the second half of the program or text it to 330-541-5794. You can also tweet it at the City Club, and we'll work it into the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Chuck Todd. Thank you, sir. Um, So, Chuck, you just mentioned uh, just before we went live that there was some breaking political news overnight, not in Ohio. But, um, no, and, and George, I'm guessing half of you, at least, if, I'm guessing you're pretty political, Gage. If I say Herschel Walker, oh, you got to get on the internet. I had to get up early yeah, to get here to uh, like, make the French toast. Yeah, this Come whole on. internet thing, you should check it out. <laughs> um, look, it's, uh, it's only October 4th, and <laughs> this is going to be a long month of October surprises, right? Um, it's, it, it, I don't want to, like, you're always a little uncomfortable the Daily Beast is not the New York Times. And I'll just leave it at that, right? So it's always one of these awkward situations when you have these news organizations that have, like the Daily Beast has, is, practices journalism, but they don't know, but they sometimes run with one source. And not everybody, you know, so it is one of those things, I wanna be a little cautious here, but it obviously, there's been a whole pattern with Walker and, and look, we're testing the whole premise we know Donald Trump could survive everything Herschel Walker is putting on the table. The question is, can Herschel Walker survive everything that, that's on the table uh, on that front? And I'll just say this. I, I have a, a, a uh, suspicion that this is going to be an uglier than normal month, last month before a campaign, because you have all the ingredients for ugliness. Ingredient one is very close competition, right? The fact that that we're at the knife's edge, both in the House and the Senate. So the stakes are hot. Number two, you have a lot of first-time candidates, which means there's a lot of garbage to sift through to, be, to sort of be an opposition researcher cynic. But there's a lot of first-time candidates haven't been vetted very well, right? And especially a lot of these candidates didn't go through competitive primaries, didn't really litigate some of their stuff. So there's that. So I just think you're just going to see a lot of stuff. Third is there's a lot of news organizations, excuse me, there's a lot of organizations that (laughs) call themselves news organizations that will take opposition research sort of, here you go. Yeah. And they'll just hit, hit, um, hit publish, you know, and put it live. So throw all of that combination in there. 
And I think it's, you know, this might be the beginning of what is an extraordinarily ugly month. And it could end up being, right, if you throw so much, you know, one of the, one of the tricks of Donald Trump I've always thought is, you know, if you have uh, one wart on your face, everybody sees the wart. That one wart, they can see the whole thing. You have 20 warts on your face, they can't focus on one. And, you know, there's a part of me that would, if this gets really messy and this gets really ugly, it becomes where I think the voter, it has le- it, it, it can all have almost less impact, right? Because it, it can all, oh God, it's all a mess. Or, oh God, they all suck. Or, oh God, they're all terrible, right? Um, but it's, uh, you know, this is, the, this, the expression politics ain't beanbag is going to be an understatement this month, I have a feeling. Yeah. And it's not, not limited to, um, to a race in Georgia. No, 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 no. That's what I mean. I just think you're going to see, again, I go back, there has been, there's no doubt there's stuff that gets saved for October, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when an oppo file and you see this stuff, it's a standard and there's stuff that, and so, uh, you know, you, just expect a lot of garbage. And some of it may be true. <laughs> so what's happening, you know, the, we, we here in Ohio, we see a lot going on with our, um, with our Senate race mm-hmm. between J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan, our governor's race, and mm-hmm. there's a you know, slew of down ticket races as well. It's a very competitive year. Um, when you look at Ohio in relation to the nation mm-hmm. and in the sort of historical context, what do you see right now? I see a state that's uh, moving out of the battleground, um, uh, uh, and I don't know if it comes back in. I, and I'll say this: I don't think this stuff is. I don't think any trend is permanent. You know, when, meaning you know, we'll sit here, and there's 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 always been people that attempt to write books that claim something is going to be, um, you know, the permanent demo, the grow, the permanent democratic majority that's coming, or the, you know, Karl Rove, I'm going to create a majority with Latinos that'll be impossible to, to defeat. You know, that survived all of four years. So nothing is ever inevitable, but it feels like for the rest of this decade, Ohio's a red state. Um, now, if Tim Ryan pulls the upset, it may make some Democrats rethink and think, okay, maybe they ought to, it's worth coming back in the state, but the, the National Democratic Party has written off Ohio. Okay, all you have to do is look at how much support Nan Whaley's getting, and that tells you everything you need to know. Okay, they just don't believe, that doesn't mean individual congressional races, they're not, you know, they're throwing a ton of money to help Marcia Kaptur, right? Because that's numbers in the House. Steve Shabbat down in Cincinnati is, I mean, that's probably, if you ask me, like, if, there, if I had eight, just, you know, I have a, I'm, we're trying to come up with eight to ten House races that if you just follow those and you went, you know, that would tell you the majority. I'd put Shabbat on that list. So there's certainly plenty in Ohio that I think Democrats will spend money down the ticket. But mm-hmm. um, they haven't spent any money for Tim Ryan. I don't know how much you guys are aware of that. The National Party has done zero for Tim Ryan's. Not, Tim Ryan's funding his own campaign. Mm-hmm. So, and he's look. He's there's no better fundraiser uh, for Tim Ryan than J.D. Vance. You know, I mean, we've seen the online email fundraising. I mean, it, it is. And um, now, Tim Ryan has raised so much money. You have Democrats in Washington complaining that donors are wasting their money because that's how they don't think. I talked to one very- They don't see it as a competitive they race? They don't see it as a winnable race. There's a difference. They believe it's certainly competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I talked to a senior strategist to the president who said, 48's 48. You know, we don't, it's just, you're, you're not gonna get- It's not 51. It's not 51. Now, John Tester's a three-term senator who's never gotten 50% of the vote. So, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I. It wouldn't surprise me if, if uh, I do think if Ryan wins, he does it under 50, and there has to be some sort of, you know, maybe people that like the wine can't vote for Vance, won't bring themselves to vote for Ryan, vote third party or something like that. But when you look at a race, you know, the Democrats have had the best success to win in, in sort of red-leaning places is when they've actually had some libertarian or some other third party candidate grab two or three percent to lower your winning number, right? I, to lower the winning number to 48. I feel like Ohioans sometimes, and in particular on the Democratic side, mm-hmm. look at the Tim Ryan race and the Tim Ryan candidacy as if Sherrod Brown did it, Tim Ryan should be able to do it. I think a lot of Ohio Democrats believe that. And I understand why they should, because hey, all they have to say is look at the scoreboard. Right. Sherrod Brown has done it. Now, there's a cup I would remind people, Sherrod Brown 
is one of the, has had remarkable luck in the 21st century at the cycles he's run in for statewide. That said, he certainly had bad luck <laughs> back in the 90s a couple of times. But if you look at the three cycles he's won his Senate races in, 2006, huge Democratic year. 2012, also a strong Democratic year with Obama winning re-election. Uh, in fact, by the way, keep this in mind, 2012 and 2004, the only two election years in the 21st century where the House, the Senate, and, uh, and the White House did not change parties. Every other election cycle, one of those three institutions flipped parties. That's how volatile things have been. And it's one of these, we are living in an era of volatility, right? And this is why I think we're, we're in an era that you're like, mm, you know, any, anything is possible. To go back to Brown, though, so 2012 was that good cycle. And then he gets his last re-election in 2018. And he had a little breeze at his back. And he won. But do you remember his margin, right? What, it, it was one of those where nobody in Washington thought Brown was going to lose. Mm -hmm. Right, and Republicans had sort of given up on the race, and then you looked at that margin, you're like, oh, right. So it, it's and the two candidates yeah. he ran against were he had, um, were, he were B, anomalies. B, in let's some just ways. call them B team. Yeah, they weren't the A list recruits that they were looking for. They they got a, you know, I'll just be respectful here. They didn't get the top tier candidate they were looking for. So um, you know, I do think that. We're, so look, this is not as good of a year that Ryan is running in a tougher year than any of the three years that Brown won. And so, look, that's why I, it is, how hard is that ceiling? And can mm -hmm. he break through it? Um, I, if Ryan wins, I'm going to assume there's something between today and November 8th that comes out that we don't know about right now that impacts the race. I still, so my point is I still think Ryan needs one more break, if you will. Well, um, he's speaking here. Uh, There's your break, later, right there. Break. I mean, yeah. because my, if J, didn't J.D. Vance has not come here yet. J.D. Vance has not been here since the Hillbilly Elegy years. Uh, so if he doesn't come, he doesn't win, right? It, naturally. Come on, like, right? J.D. and, and Tim Ryan, if you don't come. Comes through the city club. You don't come to the city um, club, you know. <laughs> the, um, the governors, before we leave Ohio and mm -hmm. move on to other stuff, the governor's race. Um, Mike DeWine mm -hmm. as a... Um, a kind of surprisingly strong incumbent given the way his party has treated him since March of 2020. You know, Mike DeWine is sort of like Brian Kemp down in Florida, uh, excuse me, Georgia, um, where he beat the Trump forces in his primary, right? And it made him almost invincible in a general, right? So here's Georgia, which is a swing state that's still, still got a pinkish shoe to, to it a little bit, right? And... Uh, here, obviously, uh, leans, leans red, but I, I think that, that the fact that DeWine was weak in his primary because he was being challenged by Trump only helped him with the middle of the electorate, which is why he seems so untouchable, mm -hmm. uh, I think, in a general election. So it is interesting. The, you look at, there's a handful of these Republicans running statewide this year, Chris Sununu, Brian Kemp, Mike DeWine, who have had beaten Trump challengers. Right, sort of beaten back the Trump wing of the party and survived, and they look almost invincible in their general elections. Now, Kemp's mm -hmm. the least, obviously, strong of the three that I pointed out, but he looks like he, he keeps getting a little bit stronger all the time. And it's, you know, there is a bunch of, I call it the Chamber of Commerce Republican crowd, mm -hmm. okay? People like, you know, who, who are Republicans for fiscal reasons. We call them Ralph Regular Republicans you know, in Ohio. There you go, Ralph Regular Republicans, Latourette Republicans, maybe, right. would be another way to put it. Um, and they don't want to vote Democrat. Okay, they don't. They don't. You know, they don't. They don't like the the Democratic policies. But Trump is that much of a problem for them, right? And so I think these folks did vote Biden. Uh, but I think there are going to be some Biden voters, for instance, in Georgia that are voting Kemp, mm -hmm. and they'll probably vote Warnock. You know, and it's in the it's sort of, it, in that swing vote, it's college-educated white men. You know, that is, that is the unique swing vote. Uh, I don't think college-educated white men ever thought they'd be a swing vote. What but about in, in today's <laughs> American politics, believe it or it's not, weird. that particularly, you know, and you see it particularly on abortion rights questions, you sort of see where the college-educated white guy is very much... And, uh, against the, the road decision in, in, in big numbers. And that, that seems to be the tension point there. 
And that's it's a voter I'd keep an eye on. Speaking of the Roe v. Wade and Dobbs decision, um, that the, the narrative is that mm -hmm. that's inspired large numbers of women to, uh, mm -hmm. to register to vote. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always surprised when people suddenly get engaged and they're like registering to vote. I'm like, what have you been doing? Um, but we're the weirdos. <laughs> people don't realize we're the, enga the engaged people. Yeah. Are in a we're minority, the anomaly, right? Yeah. We're anomalies, and yeah. I think we have to. We sometimes it doesn't mean it doesn't mean the 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 ones that are not engaged day to day, they're just living their lives, right? Okay, right. these are not these are you know this is not like you know, how dare they not look? Not everybody's going to be engaged every day, you know, in what the Daily Beast is reporting on Herschel Walker, right, mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, these are people just living their lives yeah. who are sitting there, you know, who who don't want to be interested in government. I mean, right. I had somebody say to me in, in one of my little voter focus groups, you know, I, I miss not caring. You know, I'm, you know, it's sort of like, you know, and the Trump era has made me care. And this person's ready to go back to like, like ignoring it, you know. Oh. And I'll, I'll tell you, there's no... When everything mattered less. Well, it's funny. Um, when, uh, right, when like Seinfeld was controversial or something to people, right, you know, whatever. We all missed the 90s, but it turned out we were living in, like with our heads in the sand. Um, I, I, f I fear like the 90s are gonna look worse and worse, like as we go back, you know, we're like, boy, were we just living in la-la land? Like, what were we thinking, you know? Um, but uh, it, it, it's, uh, I've lost my train of thought here. Uh, I was talking about the women who oh, registered the register, to vote. Yeah. with the registered to vote. Um, I mean, like, like you would think that that would give Nan Whaley a boost. You would think that that would yeah, shift look, the dynamics. I think she's just not been able to financially get off the ground. Right. Mm -hmm. This is one of those things where uh, the, there was, you know, the, the original intent of Emily's list was, right, the word Emily stands for early money is like yeast, right? It makes the dough rise. The point is this. You got to have some money to raise some money. To, and she's never gotten that support network, whether that's on her here, on the party, the national, I don't, you know, I'm not going to get, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and, 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 you know, I think there's just, I go back to the national perception that, oh, and, and I think you have a bunch of national democratic donors. Oh, DeWine was one of the good guys during COVID. He can't, he's not going to lose. So there's just this, I think she's just had a hard time convincing people that DeWine, DeWine is vulnerable or sh and should mm -hmm. be vulnerable. And I think that that's, uh, you know, this is one of those where there's no shame in running and losing mm -hmm. and getting ready to do it again. Mm -hmm. And I think she's, she certainly, I think, um, has, a, has, a, has uh, I think, had a pretty good track record as mayor of Dayton. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, my assumption is, you know, this is not the last you hear from her. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about your job. Mm -hmm. um, the, how do you do... You do <laughs> no. <laughs> Let's talk after. Um, there's too many of my board members here right now. Because um, this looks like a great gig. It is a great yeah, gig. I mean, it is. It is. I'm not going to lie. You it's know, with a job swap. Right? Yeah, yeah. We can do that. Yeah. We can arrange that. Um, but how do you do what you do in, a, in an environment where half of the people you're trying to book uh, are your sworn enemy? Not your sworn enemy, I, but declare you as a sworn enemy. Rather. Well, and it's not even that. You know, these folks, you know, I, it, the, the, the bigger problem I think we face in, in what is a shrinking sort of whatever, 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 whatever we're left representing, right? Mm -hmm. What I believe is this version of accountability media that, that, you know, believes in, you know, this sort of accountability journalism of like, all right, all right explain yourself. Tell us what, you know, is that, um, you know, I, talk to plenty of these folks who don't, and this is not just a phenomenon on the right anymore. You have a lot of Democratic leaders. Chuck Schumer hasn't been on the show in five years. What? He hasn't done any of the Sunday shows in five years. Because he doesn't want anything he says to get weaponized. He doesn't want to be asked a question that he has to, an uncomfortable question about a Joe Manchin or Bernie Sanders or whatever it is that he's got to manage. You know, Mitch McConnell doesn't want to have to answer questions about Herschel Walker or Ron Johnson. And, and so, you know, it's, there is this, so it's easier to go on a friendlier outlet to talk about what you want to talk about rather than have somebody come in. And so there's this fear among elected officials now that anything they do in a long-form interview, just one thing gets weaponized. And it's true, right? I mean, you know, I'm, 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 I'm you know, I used to be, you know, five or six years ago, if 
something that appeared on our show appeared in a TV ad, it'd be like, well, see how relevant we are. Now I like feel terrible. You know, it's like, great, that person's not coming back. I mean, I've seen, I've seen the Kamala Harris clip of her interview with me now show up in all these Republican ads on immigration, mm -hmm. you know, saying the border is secure and using that to pound her. Uh, what Rick Scott said, said to me about abortion is already in two ads. Uh, from Sunday is already I saw in two ads on the Democratic side. And you just, and that's, that's not my quote unquote fault, right? No, it was no question, it's the environment we live in. And so this is something, you know, and if you, you, you see this more and more where Vance doesn't want media covering him at times, mm -hmm. you know, and they keep, they try to keep some, you know, if, if they don't deem you a, a, a friendly outlet, Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a new, even a neutral outlet, they don't want, they're just this, you know, fear of whatever gets said gets clipped, and the, there it and is. And I, I should explain to the audience, too, I mentioned Tim Ryan. Vance is invited here. They have not, you know, accepted the invitation. But, you know, here's the irony to this. I, there was always a part of me after the 16 campaign that thought, well, because yeah, I, I said, to, I remember after the 2012 campaign, um, I said something, I said, you know, with this new era of media, uh, somebody ought to, instead of always worrying about, you know, protecting their space, just sort of flood the zone. Well, Donald Trump did that. He flooded the zone in 15 and 16. It was an effective strategy. So for the life of me, I have no idea why all these acolytes are afraid of attention, which is, you know, Trump sort of, he didn't care if he had a bad interview. He'd just go and say something crazier an hour later so that you, were, you didn't focus on what he said an hour earlier. You know, I, and so I, there was always a part of me that thought, okay, this is going to be, you know, our real challenge is going to be, there's going to be, and that is, like, a guy like, you know, there's people like Jim Jordan who are desperate to come on the Sunday shows because they just want to use it to perform. And that is something we're careful of. I'm not going to, I will book somebody who's relevant. I, there's nobody I will, there's nobody I ever say is, is I'll never put on the show. There might be people I'll never put on the show, but I would never say I'll never put them on the show. <laughs> but there's a reason for that, because you actually don't know when you actually, it may be relevant. You know, you don't know if it's a storm, a natural disaster, so, you know. Look, even like the, there's an argument to be even made the wackiest, to, like, to well, let Jim Jordan on and the show. And there is times, oh, I would, but, uh, and I've in, We've invited, invited him here, he said I've yes, had him and on then the never scheduled it. I, I've invited him on the show, I've had him on the show before. Um, and I, you know, there's, there's, when it's relevant, I'm willing to do it. Needs to be in person. Needs to be live. You know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, excuse me, on tape, because there's there's certain people who try to. I do think I have a responsibility to not let somebody hijack the platform. Right. There, there's sort of a fine line. I I do believe. You know, I'm not a believer in protecting people's. Per, you know, you're protecting your precious conservative or liberal ears. Like, no, you've got to hear from the other side. Okay, you got to hear what they stand for, what they believe. But there's this line, I don't think I also should let my platform be hijacked. So there's a, a, a fine yeah. line uh, on that front, too. But I, it, it is sort of one of these, you know, I, I think that we should all demand that these politicians, instead of, you know, stop cherry picking. And I think in some ways, put it all out there. Mm -hmm. um, so it would certainly be better to have it out there than, than us wondering what they stand for. Take this a bit. There's, you know, there's a reason why a bunch of Republicans right now don't want to talk specifics about abortion. But in fairness to the voters, I think everybody wants to. I mean, this to me is what made the the overturn of Roe just a nightmare for every elected, anybody running for any office, because you've now got to state the specifics. All right, don't just tell me you're for or against abortion. Mm -hmm. Tell me when, exceptions, this, and and so they none of them want to go through the details. But that's not fair to the voters. Mm -hmm. The voters ought to know. Um, I'll tell you this. I'll make one prediction about this state and abortion rights. Please. That it'll be enshrined in your constitution in the next, in the next four years because you guys are a referendum state. Yeah. yeah at some point, I, you know, how, I don't know how you end up, but whether it's in 24, you know, the question is what is the enshrinement look like, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's, that's probably going to be your debate. But... It's pretty, you know, I think any state that you can get a referendum on the ballot around the country, I mean, as you see, whether, look, the Kansas electorate and the Ohio electorate look awfully similar, right? They're sort of a, it's a, it's a you know, red state with a lot, a lot of blue dots. 
and and I think you know, and, and I think they sort of the. I think Trump won Kansas a little by a little higher margin than he actually won Ohio. Um, but I, I, I fully believe that if you had the Kansas referendum, the numbers would be quite similar here in Ohio. And if you're interested in the Ohio Constitution on the 11th of November, we have a forum on that. Right at. See? Well Thank done. You for the forward there promo it is. opportunity. Hap Chuck. I'm happy to do that. Um, Chuck, I want to ask you though, why do you do what you do? What do you love about the work? So I, look, I, I was a political junkie starting in the eighth grade. I know that seems weird. My father was a huge political junkie. Um, I think uh, he, he died when I was 16. I, I, I'd like to believe I'm doing the job he wishes he had thought of. And if it had existed, meaning when I was with the work I was doing at the hotline, I think that this is the career he, he was meant to have done. He was, he was a great reader, great, he just, he just consumed all of it. I remember, so when I was in eighth grade, I had a cousin of mine, um, anyway, I, 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 he just died, my cousin, uh, last week, and we're having the memorial service Sunday. So it's just a, it's 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 been a very fresh memory for me. But he was, he was basically, I I'm an only child, and um, he's the closest thing I've had to a bro I've had to a brother, and he was, he's about ten years older. He's ten years older than I am. By the way, cancer sucks. In case anybody wants, yeah, you know, it needs does. to needs needs that uh, breaking news alert. Um, and so uh, he stayed with us while he was running. Back in the, in, the, in the 80s in Florida, we used to have like about six or seven statewide elected offices. We elected everything. Um, now we've narrowed it down. But at the time, there was a race for education commissioner. And my, my cousin was a, a young sort of campaign operative. And so he got the, got the job. It was headquartered in Miami. So he stayed with us. That's what campaign folks, you know, you don't get paid squat, right? So you, you always got to hope you find friends or family to, to, to put you up. And my cousin and dad drank every night and argued politics. My cousin was a, was a liberal, worked for Mondale. Uh, my dad was the guy who taught me that J-I-M-M-Y-C-A-R-T-E. My baloney has a first name. Remember when they did that with Carter? <laughs> Just to give you a sense of my, my father's politics a little bit. And I just was mesmerized. Here were sort of two people I looked up to just having this, you know. I remember one night they drinking and they decided, let's see if we can name all 100 senators. And I just thought that was, you know. <laughs> I, I, like the, you know, at this day, by the way, I, when I can't sleep at night, that is what I do. I actually go, I count senators. But I do it, geogra I do it geographically. Uh, I, start, I always go west to east. I start Alaska, uh -huh. Hawaii, and then I go that way. Um, one time, Jerry Moran. <laughs> from Kansas was keeping me up all night because I just couldn't <laughs> remember Jerry Durant. Um, and um, it, it just sort of, and then I was like, it was summer between eighth and ninth grade. I went, I went with them and I just sort of, you know, any of you that ever spent 10 minutes with a, a day on a campaign, there, there's something exciting about it. There's, some, there's always just, just feels sort of, you know, it just feels like ragtaggish, you know, whatever it is. And, and, um, all of a sudden, that, that just became, I'm like, I'm go, I want to run a campaign. That's what I thought I wanted to do, you know, at 18. And so I applied to every school, any university that was in the Washington, D.C. metro area <laughs> that, that allowed for double majoring in political science and music, because I knew the only way I could pay for school, I was a French horn, half-decent French horn player. Um, not good enough to ever go pro, good enough to probably be a pretty decent band director, which is... You know, I just, it just, I remember the time that it really hit me that I could, I was doing everything right technically on the horn, but this guy next to me just made a better sound. <laughs> and it's just this moment where you realize, you know, there's this, whatever it is, that their extra gift that that, you know, when it comes to the performance arts that people have, and you're like, why can't I make my horn sound like that? You know, I can, I have What's that guy doing range. now? And he's probably first chair here at the Cleveland Orchestra. I don't know. <laughs> um, but you don't know his name, right? That's right. right. Yeah. Exactly. That's not why you do it. Uh, and just, I, I just loved politics. And, you know, so I, you know, thought I wanted to be on campaigns. And it was pretty quick. I got an internship at, at the hotline. Um, and uh, I just thought, no, it's a lot more fun to, to watch it. It's a lot more fun to, to, to cover it, and, you know, and, House races were my first beat. I call it the crime beat of politics. You know, when you, because my, the, the, the sources you build on house races, the, the, 
today's House race campaign managers, tomorrow's presidential campaign manager, who's the next White House chief of staff. Uh, and I'll promise you, I, I still have my old Rolodex. How many of you have kept your Rolodexes, by the way? Yeah. You just can't throw it away, right? I just, it sits there, I pack it up in a box, I never look at it except when I pack it in the box. And then I'm like, I go through it and I'm like, oh look, that guy, you know, Ron Klain, wow. And I have this like old phone number of his, you know. Or, I remember Jason Miller. His home landline. Right, 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 right. Jason Miller. I was looking at U.S. term limits, and I was like, U.S. term limits? Remember that movement in the 90s? You know? um, so uh, it, it, is, it, just, it just sort of stuck, and uh, you know, all of a sudden I'm doing this for a living, and then the rest of the country decided they got into politics. And there was a time I thought that was great. Now I'm a little worried there's too many people way too interested in politics. Now I worry. I used to think, oh, we should, talk, you know, there's politics and everything, and you know, the way the Oscars work, that's political. The way this works, that's political. And then, now you, we're all, I think, want to take a breath. Wait a minute, everything's become too political uh, on this front. And so, um, you know, ultimately, like I always say, Donald Trump's ruining everything. But uh, uh, it, it is, he's certainly taken, his presence has taken some of the joy out of, out of covering politics, I think, for a lot of us uh, these days. And, you know, now it's, Look, now it's a, to me, it's a, it's a mission to sort of, you know, tune out the noise and get it right, because this feels... There's a lot on the line. Now. You know, it's funny, in the 90s, I used to look back and think, man, I, you know, I wish I was covering a more consequential era. What would it have been like to cover the 60s, right, cover the 50s? And we all know now. <laughs> and be careful yeah. what you wish for. Yeah. All right, let's get to some questions from, from some of you uh, and uh, for our audience on the online. We're about to begin the audience Q&A, and I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here at the City Club. Chuck Todd of Meet the Press and NBC News is our guest. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, and those of you joining us via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you'd like to tweet a question, you can tweet it at the City Club and we'll work it in. You can also text it to 330-541-5794. The number again is 330-541-5794 and our staff will work it into the program. Let's go to our first question. We're gonna take our first question that was texted in. Mm -hmm. um, Chuck said there'd be a quote thing in October, implying a thing that would move the potential election results. Do you believe that debates can be that thing to move results? Um, debates are sort of have a similar problem that I was talking about me trying to get more people, get more accountability guests on, on Meet the Press, is that, um, I love debates. I'm, I'm the guy who spends starting, it's usually about next week that C-SPAN runs them back to back to back, you know? And so on nights there's not football, Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights for me, that's my, you know, tonight is gonna be to, you know, a C-SPAN night. Actually, I think tonight's a fasting night, but that's a whole yeah. other story. You can uh, do both. Are you, can we? <laughs> I don't know, I always say electronics, can I? I don't know. Uh, I, I, I try to tell my son, no electronics either. Uh, and that doesn't always go well. Right. He could skip the food, but not the phone. You know. <laughs> um, so I, I, uh, I think the, you know, debates are. If there's like a, sadly, debates are only relevant if there's a screw up, right? Like so, sure, any public forum, and I do think this is a, this is the mistake that I think candidates make. And this is the mistake I think J.D. Vance is making here, uh, in particular, by not making himself, by not putting himself through the ringer of tough questions. Because I've actually had, I had an operative for Trump one time say, look, we want to do an interview because this is warm up for him. He needs to be prepared for tough questions at a debate and things like that. Some people get that, and that that actually is why you should do a round of Sunday morning interviews. You know, sort of get comfortable feeling what that is. Vance has been so protected from tough questions and from some of these issues, this is going to be the first time he's going to face a few things. So I think he has allowed the debates to have higher stakes than they should have had. You know, and I think campaigns make this mistake, I think, all the time. Like, if you're afraid of debates, do more of them. Right? Again, it goes to the, my wart theory. One debate, it's the most consequential of all time. Five debates, and none of them matter. Hey, Tom. Dan, um, uh, 
Thanks for coming, Mr. Todd. Very, very glad to see you. Um, Thanks for having me. So this summer, there was a splash of publicity about the formation of a new third political party. Oh, yeah. Mr. Yang, uh, former Governor Whitman, mm -hmm. uh, establishing a new choice for the, the Democrats and Republicans mm -hmm. who are not comfortable with the present political choices and universe. Right. And looking ahead to 2024, most people would say, God forbid there's a rematch of, of the last time around where our choices are our President Biden or, or Mr. Trump. What impact, if any, do you think this forward party could potentially have um, in, the, uh, in the upcoming presidential election? Will it be significant uh, or just an interesting footnote? And there's also that no labels thing. Yeah, I, here's the problem with trying to build a party from the center out, is that people that are in the center are there because they equivocate. They're not there because they have a strong set of beliefs. They actually there because they have a strong set of, of, of sort of principles of how the process should work, right? Most people that are in the middle have specific issues they're passionate about, but they 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 don't they don't believe there should be one party control, and they don't believe they they know that sort of it has to be a compromise. And I think that is why centrist parties don't ever, don't ever succeed because it, it, you, know, you can have a moment if it's personality based and it's you know, about a singular individual, a la Ross Perot. Um, I think it's harder to, if you're going to build a party, you got to build around an ideology. What is a centrist ideology? And I, I mean, that's, it's sort of, actually argue it's an oxymoron a little bit, right? That's part of the problem in, in sort of, you know, can you be a passionate moderate? <laughs> right? It, well, it, somebody you know, described you once as a, a radical, radical centrist. centrist. I'll accept it, whatever that means. And I understood what he was trying to say it as, which is just, he is right in that I gravitate to the center out of pragmatism, not out of personal belief. I just think the only way you can move forward, if your ultimate goal is, is, is X, you know, you got to start at R or S before you get to X, right? So, you know, that's sort of my, you know, this is why, you know, ultimately, again, I go back to what I, the whole point of politics is to, to resolve a dispute without weapons, okay? That's, that's really, that's, that's the idea. And so, yeah, I'm, you know, when people say, well, you're, you know, it's not about bias against left or right, it's just like, no, I, th these are, it's good to know what your ideologies are, but ultimately, you know, the steps forward are all about what happens in the middle and what the compromise. You know, we're in a weird era right now where I think people are pretty defined in which side they're going to vote, but there's still a handful of swing voters, and they matter more than ever. So it's a smaller group of people, but they're more relevant than ever. So as for this party, look, if, 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 if we're stuck with Biden and Trump, there's going to be a, a significant third party person, entity, something. And it will be enough to be a factor, but not enough to be, to, to sort of get elected. I mean, I, I do think there's just, that's a huge vacuum. Biden versus Trump, there's just going to be too many moneyed people who are going to be trolling for an alternative. So I do think that, that in that case, this serves as a vehicle for that. But I'm not, I'm not a believer in the long term. Look, I think the solution to our politics, our problem right now, uh, I think the best solution that you could implement, like do I think, I wish we were a four party. I think we're really a four party country, not a two party. I think both parties are too big for their coalitions. You know, I do think that there is a, that, that if you look at the, the 2016 election actually gave us sort of the blueprint of what a four party system would have looked like. You'd have had Bernie Sanders as the nominee of the progressive party, right? You've had Hillary Clinton as the nominee of the sort of the liberal center left Democratic Party, sort of what, you know, what the Liberal Dem Party is in, in the UK or, or something like that. Um, you know, there'd have been a, a significant primary between Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and, and, and John Kasich to be the center-right, you know, sort of the Chamber of Commerce Republican, the business wing party. And then Trump would have been the more populist conservative party nominee. Um, you know, I think our, I actually think that there would have be it would give our politics a little space. And you know, I have this theory that if you, if you have to form a coalition to get power, then you're gonna form coalition, then you know, then you're sort of 
realize that you are always going to have a coalition in order to enact power, right? So I, I think it would be help. It's a way to sort of heal our current situation. But I, for that's not reasonable. <coughs> but parliamentary but, democracies right now are not. Doing and I'm great. not saying, and I wouldn't be talking about parliamentary. I'd be okay. four parties runoff. Okay. type of situation if you whether you know that's what I mean by coalition it's mm -hmm. going to be in some ways whoever the top two somebody's going to appeal to one or the other and who knows right you might have had a Trump appealing to Sanders which we know there's plenty of evidence to that right in a four-party system you know maybe Trump ends up making Sanders a cabinet secretary right you know in our whatever it is or something like that or vice versa you know <laughs> Trump is Bernie Sanders Secretary of Treasury no anyway um, <laughs> A boy can dream. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> um, but the realistic solution, I think, is I, I just think ranked choice voting is, I think it's, look, I think ranked choice voting is going to come to a lot of states that have referendum. You will not, it will not pass in states where you have to go through the legislature. Because the two major parties, ranked choice voting will weaken the two parties even more, the, the current two parties. It will, you know, because, and, and I, I think, I think that might be healthy, right? But not everybody that runs a political party, because that, that would certainly take away their power. But it wouldn't shock me if by the end of this decade, Ohio had ranked choice voting. Again, you're a, you're, you're a state, you can put stuff on the ballot and get around the le Any state where you can go around your legislature mm -hmm. is a state that you should keep an eye on for that. Missouri, Nevada, I think it's on the ballot this year in Nevada. It, they tried to get it this year in Missouri. They'll probably get it for 24. I, I'm, I'm one of those now, I, you know, I just think it, ranked choice voting is about moderating the extremes. Mm -hmm. And we have seen that it does do that, right? It did it in New York City. It's done it in Alaska. So we see that that, that is what it does. But again, you're going to have ideologues left and right who won't like that result, right? Because it, it, it doesn't. Um, but it might be the way to sort of get out of the mess we're in now. Mr. Todd, welcome to Cleveland. Thank you, sir. Good to have you here. Like millions of other people, I'm on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, Channel 3, you know, wouldn't miss you. My question is, historically, the par party out of power from the White House, as they face the next election, you always see a flood of possibilities, candidates. In 2024, 2024 if, is it inevitable it's going to be Trump? And if not, who are the viable, possible, qualified candidates that could emerge as a Republican nominee other than Mr. DeSantis. What's your definition of qualified these days? <laughs> 35 years old is about it, I think. It's about, um, sorry, I heard the word qualified. I'm like, okay. Uh, first, you, you brought up something that I, I actually think is why it's very possible on November 8th, Republicans win the House and the Senate, and People like us say, well, hey, historically, that's always the thing. That's what happens, yada, yada, yada. But if it doesn't happen, there's this, okay, why wouldn't it happen, right? Why, if Republicans don't do it, why wouldn't it happen? And I think the biggest, you brought up a point about why do parties out of power usually do have success pretty quickly, you know, when they've been put out of power, usually within two or four years. Because most of the time when the party loses, they remodel, right? They reform. We're not that party. Remember, the Republicans of 2010, we're not Bush Republicans. We're a new Republican party. You know, and the Tea Party movement is like, no, 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 Bush raised the deficit. We're not them. So the whole point was, hey, you didn't like the Bush years, but we're not Bush, right? The Democrats in 2008, 2006, we're not part of them. We're a new party. We're not part of the Clinton wing of the party. We're, we're, we're sort of a new party, right? This guy Barack Obama was stumping for all these candidates. You know, it was sort of a new... Because usually a party presents itself, hey, we, we learned our lesson. We hear you. The one thing that, that I think is a huge impediment to the Republicans right now is that they're not presenting anything new. Right? They're not saying, you know, they're just basically saying not them. But they're not saying, hey, we've changed. We're different. This is what we're going to do that we didn't do before. And I think that is why you're not seeing a flood of voters in the middle ready to just automatically you know, why there's been this hesitation to just hand, you know, why these races haven't moved yet. Now, they still may. I mean, look, gas is, OPEC's having a meeting to try to, because they don't like where the price of oil is going, and so they may 
you know, shrink the market again and gas prices may go up for November 8th. And I think, it, I mean, it's a pretty, it's a pretty compelling um, pattern when you see the um, Joe Biden's approval rating goes up as gas prices went down, right? So, I mean, it, it did seem to be very much correlated. Democratic uh, uh, confidence about the midterms improved as the price of gas got closer to 350. Um, so I am mindful that that thing can switch, but I do think this is a huge impediment for the Republicans is that they've not, and that commitment, I mean, it was sort of like, it was the tiniest, like, it was really, a real, I mean, it felt like Clinton 96 reelect. The only thing missing was midnight basketball. It was just like the smallest of small incremental ideas because they were just trying to come up with something that could, that everybody could, whatever they could, that could agree on that said the word border and inflation and crime, right? So uh, it, it, I do, anyway, I just, you, you, the way you triggered that thought. But as for 24, look, if, if Trump's not in the picture, there's, there's 20 people that are going to run. And some of them are going to be qualified. Um, <laughs> look, I think there, the, the question is, I focus on the candidates who I'm pretty sure are going to try to run even if Trump runs. So I'll just focus on those. Tom Cotton. He's been, you know, he's somebody that's been, tr basically he, more than anybody, has been trying to come up with a, an ideological argument to, t to sort of, for the Trump movement. Like he's tried to sort of make an intellectual case that, it, that it's more than just grievance. And so, I mean, he is trying to be the, hey, I'm the Trump guy that believes in democracy. Like he was, he was very vocal at trying to stop the January 6th stuff. He was, you know, vo he, I mean, so he wants, he wants to sort of see if that's a space that you can occupy. Um, I think DeSantis now feels pretty, you know, he's pretty confident that he can do this with or without Trump. Uh, and then you have guys like Larry Hogan who feel like they're gonna play the role of John Huntsman or John Kasich, you know, which is they'll be the media's favorite Republican um, because they'll be the Republican that shows up on TV uh, who does show up for interviews, the presidential candidate that is willing to do these things. But, you know, he'll probably have a, a Matt Dolan type ceiling, right? You know, and I say that with, we, we saw what, what the ceiling was here in a, in a crowded primary. There will be a, con there is a significant minority of the Republican Party that does want to support a candidate like a Larry Hogan or a John Kasich, or, you know, somebody from that, from that, um, it goes back to the people that have been Republicans all their life that would prefer a Republican like that, right? And um, so I think you'll have a little bit of that crowd, but Trump is such a, you know, you look at Nikki Haley and I think Christy Nome and Kim Reynolds, uh, Midwestern governors, uh, who I think would run if Trump wasn't there, but won't run because of Trump's presence. And, you know, I know we're gonna sit here and we have, well, is he gonna run? And, you know, everybody's there. Here's, how does he behave if he doesn't run? He's just, I just, like, it just doesn't, it does not compute. He won't be able to handle it. So he's gonna end up running in some form, but what does running look like? Right? Is it just him parachuting into rallies right before the primary, every, whatever the primary is, the weekend before? While he, you know, and, and the thing is, as we all know, Trump will just be the presence. And obviously running makes these legal, makes all the legal stuff look more political. So he's incentivized to run because of all of these legal problems he has. His best defense is to simply run a campaign. Um, and so I just expect, I can't imagine him not running unless he can't. Hmm. And that, you know, that, that's, that's, a, that's, a higher, that's a higher authority. Another so, question. I, you know, and I, look, I go back to this when, when operatives from people that are working for Republicans that believe that they can beat Trump in a primary, I always ask them, so how does, tell me how Trump concedes. Yeah. <laughs> Bottom line is, be glad, Cleveland, you're not hosting the 2024 Republican convention. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be a city that hosted the Republican convention in 24. I just wouldn't. I think it's, it could be a very volatile situation. Half the room's like about to Google, who's hosting the Republican convention? <laughs> Go ahead. I think it's going to be Good morning, uh, Mr. Todd. Milwaukee. Uh, and yeah. welcome to Cleveland. Yep. Uh, two <coughs> quick questions. Will Biden or should or will he run again? Mm -hmm. And uh, your thoughts on Cory Booker. 
So it's interesting with, um, I don't know if you saw, Al Sharpton is out. You guys are a pretty well-read crowd, I saw. So if you've already, if you've read your Herschel Walker news, I'm guessing you read the news that Al, that Al Sharpton says Biden told him that he's running for re-election. Here's what I could tell you from my reporting on this is it's been made clear to me by people around him that he's running for re-election until he's not. And that's what it's going to be. And there's, you're never going to hear anything of, other than, of course, I'm running for re-election. I'm, of course, you know, but, you know, today, today's not the time for politics or whatever. Because the second he offers any equivocation publicly, right, that just opens the floodgates. That just becomes, and then suddenly, it, you know, weakens him in an in a, in a instant. So, look, I've, I've been told expect the campaign headquarters to be in Philadelphia. Don't be surprised if they even open a headquarters in the month of, you know, by January 20th, 2023, you know, sort of. In, in, but very quickly after the, after the midterms, um, he is going to certainly act like somebody who's running for re-election. Um, but I've also been told that this is obviously going to be a decision that happens at the end, or the real decision is at the end of the, sometime at the end of 23. And I think that's something to keep in mind, um, is if he decides he's not going to run. And, you know, I don't know if you saw what Bob Gates said about two or three months ago. He didn't think anybody in their 70s ought to be in a leadership position in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the executive, whether it's Pentagon, whether it's, you know, Speaker of the House or President of the United States. And, um, and he put himself in there. He says, I, you know, he wouldn't take a job right now in his, uh, at his age. Um, and it's, it's less about the mental faculties and more about the physical stamina and just how you know, grinding, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're never off the clock, and more so now than ever in our political environment. So, look, I think this, you know, we've all seen the pictures of George W. Bush in 2001 and George W. Bush in 2008, right? And Barack Obama in 2009 and Barack Obama in 16, right? You're like, where'd that gray hair come from, right? You know, um, we know the presidency just ages people. I mean, it, it just does. So, you know, that I think, but I, you know, another factor that nobody knows what's going to impact is if Republicans win the House, um, there's going to be a lot of Hunter Biden investigations. You know, I'm told that Joe Biden worries every day that his son's going to relapse. Because when you're an addict, you're always an addict. And that's the great fears in his head. Does the attention on Hunter make him angry and defiant and make him want to run? Or does the intention on Hunter make him want to not run and put a cocoon and, and sort of protect his child, right? That sort of mindset. So I think that's a wild card that none of us, we're all, any of you are parents, it's just, it just is, all right? We, you know, we, we, can, we can have a discussion about the specifics, but at the end of the day, we all know family's family and, and, and you know, uh, you're always trying to rescue your kid uh, on that front. So that is going to, I think, impact the decision. Keep an eye on timing. If Biden decides not to run, when he goes public, will tell you a lot about his confidence level in his vice president. If he waits till, till the calendar says 2024, he's trying to help his vice president. He's trying to give her a leg up. If he makes this announcement, say, Thanksgiving 2023, he's saying, good luck. You know, uh, you know I'm, 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 I'm going to let the chips fall where they may, and let's see more. And you ask about Cory Booker. I mean, you know, Cory Booker was, the, for me, the Joe Biden of 08, which is you'd, you'd watch every debate in 08, and you're like, you know, Biden's winning all the debates, right? It was always about Hillary and Obama and, and a little bit of Edwards for a while, but it was always like, you know, Biden seems to be the most you know, the best at, at that part of it. That's how I felt about Cory Booker during the primary season, is that throughout the whole process, you'd sit there and be like, is anybody, he seems to be the best, like, combination of everything, you know, up there. Why isn't he getting traction? Um, and it just, you know, I think the problem was he didn't have, he didn't have a base that was for him, right? The progressives had their candidates. He was not progressive enough for the progressives. 
He was not centrist enough for the sort of the establishment party, right? You know, I always viewed him as sort of the Biden backup, right? If Biden fell on his face, I've always thought the established, those that, that, that Booker might have been the beneficiary uh, of that more than any of the other candidates that were running. Um, you know, Booker's just one of those people you sit there and you're like, he's got a lot of game. Um, you know, I've talked with people around him. I've talked with him about this. Uh, you know, he's got his own theories. You know, I mean, he thinks that, that it, it was, you know, he was not the first anything, right? Kamala Harris was going to be a first. Uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg was going to be a first, right? And, and, he, and he thought he was getting punished for not being a first. Now that's, I, I, you know, and it's like, I, that's the whole point. We're, I, I don't know about you, we're all, we don't want to be any more first. We're hoping we're over the firsts. We'd like to get to the seconds, the thirds, the fourths, you know, the, where we're stopped counting because it's irrelevant because it just is, right? Um, but that's been his theory. Still need a female president. You know, of his case. I, 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 yes. This is going to be our last question. No. On the Democratic um, philosophy of supporting really right-wing candidates in primaries so that they think they have a better chance, and how that affects a state like Pennsylvania, where some of the pundits are saying that that's giving Oz a step up because Republicans won't vote for the gubernatorial candidate, so, but they will like, be faithful to their party. So how is that going to affect things? You, were, you guys were talking about this on Sunday. Yeah, I, I, uh, I don't see how, right, I asked the... Uh, the you know, it's funny, the Democratic Governors Association was doing this more than the Democratic House campaign folks, but the Democratic House campaign got more attention for the one race they did this in, right? The governors have been, they've been, do, the, the governor's uh, campaign arm has been doing this in Maryland, Pennsylvania, Illinois, um, and they've had, they've been successful. They got their crazy writer, right-wingers to be these nominees. Look, I, I, think it's, it's, uh, I think it's extraordinarily dangerous uh, to do this. And I think it, you know, if you care, if democracy is supposed, you know, is it country first? That's not country first. That's party over country. You know, it's sort of like saying, you know, if you, it, you know, if you care about the democracy, you have to be a Democrat. You know, it, it, it anyway, I'm not, it, it's a, I, I, I just think it's a cynical game. And I think it, I think it, I think it hurts the, if you care about this, it hurts the cause. I give Roy Cooper credit. He had a better spin line than uh, Sean Patrick Maloney did on this question. Uh, Cooper's line was, well, there were no Liz Cheney's in these races. And so I guess that means he'd have supported Liz Cheney uh, if she were the Republican nominee for governor in Pennsylvania. No. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, he wouldn't. He wouldn't have supported a further right candidate against her. I, I guess that's what he's what, yeah. he, what he's saying there. Um, look, I just think it's a. I think it's risky. Obviously, I mean, you're going to have Democratic fingerprints on an election denier that wins, right? I mean, it's just, you know, be careful. You know, I, there were a lot of Democrats celebrating when Donald Trump was the nominee in '16, right? A lot of a lot of Clinton campaign people were like, "Oh yeah, give us Trump." Yeah. Careful what you wish for. Chuck Todd, meet the press. You don't get that in the television studio. I, not, hope, you, I hope you really so. Not at all. I mean, everybody is contractually obligated to praise me on my staff. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you did a great job. Thank Chuck. you. Um, we'd also like to uh, thank WKYC, uh, our NBC affiliate here in Cleveland, for their partnership on today's program. And I'd like to welcome guests at tables hosted by John Carroll University, PNC, and the friends of Mark Ross and Democracy. <laughs> Um, you'll want to know that on Thursday, October 13th, there's a recent addition to our calendar. Brian Deese, who's the director of the White House National Economic Council, will join us to talk about the future of the Biden-Harris administration's industrial strategy and its approach to implementing recent legislation, such as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, the CHIPS and Science Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act. Also, I mentioned earlier, on the 17th, we have Congressman Tim Ryan, who's running for Senate. Tickets are still available for both of those forums. You can find out more at cityclub.org 
Once again, thank you all for being a part of this today. And Chuck, thank you so much. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.